Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode 156 for the 20th of November, 2019. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, Good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. How are you tonight? I am well. I'm feeling a bit subdued, but I'm good. I've got a little cup of tea here, and uh, I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at Cassidy School, and we've had some rain today. We're going to have a little more rain and cooler weather, but, you know, as Oklahoma fall and winter goes, it's just not below freezing. It's kind of a little, little cool. So I think, you know, you'd probably laugh at how how mild our our times are, although they can, you know, we can have a nice storm. So we're not going to not going to say that too loud because who knows what will happen. But well, and it's been raining here the last three days. So we had rain dump here on Monday and then it was a little nicer today and yesterday. But um, Missoula's weather has been shifting. So and I, I blame that on, on climate change a bit. But we um, tend to get later winters and then the September, October, parts of November time are usually dominated by, you know, occasional snow and a lot of rain. So who knows? I'm sure it'll be uh, I'm sure a white Thanksgiving is probably in our, our forecast. And in fact, I haven't even checked weather for next week. I'll be spending Thanksgiving with my parents in lovely Great Falls, Montana, which is in north central Montana. And they tend to they can get really they call them Chinook winds in Great Falls, but they have uh, winds that come in from the north that are actually very warm winds. They're kind of a, 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 an interesting uh, weather phenomenon um, in north central Montana. So sometimes they can get 60 degree, degree days in January and February but um, usually it's pretty darn cold there So during this time of year. So I'm sure that snowballs are definitely coming our way. And this awesome. is the well, cat. Yes, I was going to say, we're here having some vocal participation. And this is all a bonus. We have a couple of live viewers in our chat room or our, uh, our stream yard uh, stream tonight. And, uh, you know, the, the weather stuff you get at the top of the show is just a bonus. Jason, what is the, what is the meat of this experience tonight? Sure. Well, neither of us are, are meteorological experts. So we, we tend to stick with where our expertise is at, which is about technology in schools. And we go through the week's headlines and I'll find out what's going on in the technology world. And we kind of shoot them through the educational prism and see if we can maybe help make some sense of the fast moving pace of technology as it relates to education. And you can see all the links we talk about each week at our website, edtechsr.com, where not only do we post show notes that go through the links, you can also see all the links we didn't get to. And sometimes we'll carry those over to an additional week. Other weeks, um, we don't, because there is a lot of news and only so much time during our hour each week. So, Wes, I'm going to suggest a topic we start with, because I think it could be a bit of a rabbit hole. And it happens to have some minor impact on the EdTech situation room because YouTube has announced new rules for creators regarding, um, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, um, how to comply with, with uh, uh, I've heard it in, in videos, both COPA and COPPA. It's the Child Online Privacy Protection Act, which has been around for a while. But uh, in September of 2019, YouTube and the Federal Trade Commission came to an agreement. I believe that YouTube paid $170 million in fines and then agreed to do a better job of meeting 
Copa as part of its larger video service. We've talked in the past, YouTube and, you know, again, largest media cache in the history of humans. There's a very large variety of content, right? And it just so happens that some of the content that ends up on there, um, well, I mean, it, it takes every kind of people to create a YouTube, right? And we've talked about in the past both our admiration for YouTube because it is an amazing place to publish if you have a unique interest that maybe doesn't have millions of, of, of followers, but 10, 20, 30,000 followers, you can get uh, a healthy audience and sometimes even make a decent wage at putting together content aimed at smaller groups, uh, esoteric topics that would never make it into mainstream media channels. But as we've also talked about, there happens to be a lot of videos and uh, YouTube got in trouble for this about a year and a half ago, I believe, that uh, that are aimed at children that really aren't children in nature, right? They explored violent topics with animated uh, 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 production values that oftentimes ended up in playlists for children. But basically, um, the FTC has asked, or I demanded YouTube, uh, create a means of taking videos that are primarily aimed at children, and they do a couple of things. They collect less data on the viewing of those videos, which goes back to the point of COPA, right, which is to stop over-collection of data aimed at, at kids for marketing purposes. And then secondarily, it also doesn't aim advertising at kids. And the reason why this has come to my radar is that first, it's been Twitter in the last week has exploded with stories about this because there are tens of thousands of creators that are legitimately worried about what happens uh, to their channel in a COPA world. Um, uh, a lot of, of preteen, teen, and 20-something educational creators, for example, uh, have uh, noted that one of the demands that Google is going to make is that if your channel is largely aimed at kids, kids is the YouTube word uh, for this. Uh, FTC, uh, it basically is looking at students that, or, I'm sorry, children that are 13 years or younger because that's what COPE was aimed at. But if you don't aim advertising, at viewers of videos, creators don't get paid from advertising dollars. And those that rely on those dollars and are creating good, high-quality, legitimate content aimed at kids are losing a revenue stream. And then, secondarily, and the reason why that uh, I've seen this video in the last 24 hours, there's a lot of YouTube channels that are not aimed at kids at all. Uh, one example we talked about last week is my uh, good friend Mike, uh, my colleague at the Digital Academy. His mom has a crafting channel uh, on YouTube, uh, 29.9 thousand followers. She's almost at 30,000 followers. She posted a video today that talked about how she is legitimately scared that she's not quite sure what to do. She is concerned about losing the revenue from the channel because it helps augment her retirement. But more importantly, um, if she marks her uh, uh, channel as an adult channel and the FC FTC determines by complaint that that is it's like a student or kid driven a content, then she could be fined. I believe the number is forty seven thousand dollars by the FTC for ignoring COPA. And it, there's there's just so many rabbit holes here that I think we could potentially talk about. But to start with, Wes, you are a creator, right? In addition to your work formally in education, you are a content creator, and you so happen to have a YouTube channel. What does your decision matrix look like in determining whether or not your content is adult-facing or kid-facing? 
That is a common rumor that I'm a creator. So, yes, I <clears throat> aspire to be so, um, but not really on a, a on a rather iterant basis in terms of, of regularity, not some kind of regular like weekly show. I was aware of this this week when I helped one of our second grade teachers actually set up her first YouTube channel. And <clears throat> there's a wonderful collaboration. I can't wait. It's going to go live on Friday. It's been months in the making. Uh, it's a musical remix that our music teacher and, and this teacher, uh, second grade, you know, wrote. Anyway, we set it up. And so new prompts and also a new uploader that's still in beta. <clears throat> and um, I put in the show notes, put in the links and I'll put them in the show notes, uh, several support articles from YouTube um, determining if your content is made for kids and set your uh, channel or videos audience. So you can do that as a blanket, you know. The amount of revenue uh, that, you know, and I have I have somewhere like 1,200, I think, subscribers on my main channel, uh, which, you know, kind of impresses kids. But, you know, as far as that I'm teaching, but I'm like, yeah, but this this isn't really that big of a deal. Um, you know, it it lets lets you um, decide on a case by case basis uh, how you're going to categorize your videos. I have not gone into the. um videos in terms of like, <coughs> pardon me, going through my, you know, archive. I don't, I don't remember. I don't know how many videos that I have. And I have both a teacher channel on our school, you know, G Suite account. And then I've got my, my personal one. So I think for sure, you know, the lessons that I am publishing for students are, you know, <coughs> are designed for kids. So I'll be marking those for them. But, you know, there's, I have a real menagerie of other kinds of things and outside the lessons that I've uh, explicitly made, like I did a two-part series on Gmail basics for my fifth and sixth graders this last uh, trimester and actually used Edpuzzle. And anyway, it was, you know, good experimentation of, of different tools. Those are, those are clear, but um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't, I mean, it's, (laughs) If, if any of you are under any illusions about Jason and I making money on this enterprise, <laughs> you know, let us just uh, put your mind at ease that this is all for free. Uh, we've, you know, talked about, you know, ways that, you know, we could monetize or something. But anyway, it's just, this is just fun at this point. Um, although we would love it if you would invite us to your conference because, you know, we both do that from time to time. Um, I think that, you know, from what my 16-year-old was telling me at breakfast, like yesterday, uh, you know, the lot of YouTubers that she's following are really up in arms because this could yeah. really, you know, hit them in the pocketbook. Um, I think it's good and healthy. We have a wild, wild west when it comes to creation and sharing of media. We've talked a little bit, even though we're not a political show, you know, and in fact, one of the articles I want to go to is, you know, talking about elections and what's coming. Uh, a lot of things that we enforce in the face to face world are not enforced in a digital world. And COPA and privacy and, you know, protecting um, not just privacy rights and, and rights of students, but actually everyone's rights. I mean, these are important things. Uh, I heard uh, a pretty interesting podcast and position this this week where they were saying, you know, stop, stop saying that data is the new oil. You know, it is not like oil. In fact, it was Tim Berners-Lee. It was on the Tech Tent podcast. So I don't know if you listen to the BBC Tech Tent. Um, it's okay. I listen to it every once in a while. But um, I thought that was interesting. And, you know, we are not yet, especially in the United States, but even in Europe, I don't think, 
grappling as a society adequately with what privacy should mean, what regular, what role there is for regulation, you know, should there be any rights that we have as consumers, for instance, to the data that has been collected and is being sold, you know, and, and it's very profitable for, for folks. So, yeah, I think that I, I see this overall as healthy. There's a lot of grousing, um, you know, and, and <laughs> there, there certainly could be some money lost for folks that are really, you know, have been cashing in on on kids with YouTube. But I got to tell you that my thinking about YouTube and we just did a parent university session last week called Let's Talk About Screen Time. We had done one last uh, fall or no spring, I guess, specifically on, on YouTube. Um you know, YouTube is a perilous place. It's not a place to let your children roam freely without supervision. And it's a place to even question whether they, you know, at what age do they need to be roaming there? And I, I do think that we've got to help kids become, you know, independent agents and choice makers. But I see this overall as a positive. I know that it's going to affect creators. That that reflects the dynamic nature of this, right? You weren't able to make a living, you know, making videos out of your home, you know, 10, 10 years ago. Uh, this has been something that's been built up. But I, I do hope that the, the creator community is going to remain vibrant. Um, but I, I think we've got we've to address these privacy issues. So I see it as a net positive. Well, and the other thing that, that having watched probably a half dozen videos in the last 72 hours about this issue is that part of the problem is, and I think the creators that aren't making videos for kids have a point here. I mean, obviously the ones making videos for kids, there is a, there, there's a big, huge question mark there because it does get rid of a large income source for a lot of creators that are making excellent stuff. And I don't know the answer to that other than, you know, Google, you've got some money, fund more uh, creators that are making good quality kids content, right? Like you're, you're getting a benefit off of, uh, those viewers, whether or not you're getting advertising dollars off of them, absolutely spend more money funding creators that aim content at kids, good quality content at kids. But I think part of it, and, um, and I, I tend to agree with this, that, 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 uh, we need to better define what constitutes a kid-directed channel, right? And, you know, and some of the, the arguments I've heard, like it seems a little ridiculous that, you know, a crafting channel, for example, might uh, perceive some threat here, even if they uh, are upfront to say that our content was never intended kids, but for adults, because in a lot of cases, and this is something that the Verge article goes into, is that um, because we're talking about a non-government actor here, i.e. YouTube, if they become more draconian the way they define things, they could end up really hurting good quality creators for no reason. And there is a, um, a, a, a for example, the Verge article that, that I'm, that I have in the show notes tonight mentions that if, if, Google apparently decides that your YouTube channel is kid facing, whether it is or not. There's no appeal process for that, right? And if there's a income that's lost because of that, that messes, I think, with, you know, the, the creator economy, which I think is an important part of, of the internet evolving. So what I hope happens is that if the FTC can better define this and put in some protections for creators, um, and balance that, then we're going to end up with a better ecosystem for hosting video. So I have a thought about that and a segue to a, a next article. One of the things we've talked about recently and probably forever on the show, not forever, but <clears throat> we've talked about automated content and yeah. the danger that that poses to uh, <laughs> really, you know, truth and information exchange overall. And there's a couple couple articles that I that I put in. So I'll kind of uh, segue over 
Um, <coughs> it's one of those. I put these under technology correction. This is Washington Post, November 15th, 2019. Here's how Russia will attack the 2020 election. We're still not ready. And so this is Renee DeResta. Uh, just like right now, if you're on Twitter, go to Twitter, follow her. Her, her Twitter handle is no upside. Phenomenal. She is like top notch researcher. I've talked before about uh, an amazing episode on Smarter Every Day where Destin interviews her as well as others and has a Facebook and, and especially the YouTube, um, but also a Twitter episode. <sighs> so I, I, I think this is part of Wes. This will be Wes's analysis of this. You know, YouTube, in addition to responding to COPA and, and those uh, that litigation, you know, they're grappling with how they can of course, monetize and continue to be profitable, but how do they manage the enormous amount of content that is, you know, questionable at best, horrific at worst, and what kinds of requirements are they going to put into the pipeline so that when videos are created, they can be managed better? And so I think that is a part of this. I remember years ago, Kevin Honeycutt, uh, a friend of mine and a great uh, like ed tech guy. He's a, you know, music teacher. Anyway, he talked about how, you know, taking content and not putting good meta tags on it is a little bit like taking a bottle and just throwing it in the ocean without any kind of label, hoping that someday it's going to show up in the right place. And, you know, somebody's going to get that message. You need to, you know, put meta information in, you know, t tag that onto content so that you can do things with it. And so what one of the things that Google is literally doing is asking creators to meta tag, you know, to a greater degree. And I think that's because they want to apply algorithmic tools to better manage content and then filter and, and decide, you know, how should these things be handled? So this Washington Post article, and it's not just Renee DiResta, it's also Michael McFall and Alex Stamos. Um, will really perhaps get your attention if you, for some strange reason, we're starting to feel optimistic about politics and what we're going to be looking at in the next election, uh, because the ways in which disinformation, what this really shows me is the playbook of the Soviet Union. And let's be honest, it's also the United States in terms of how we historically during the Cold War, you know, had lots of folks. I don't have my my library of books here, but I've got plenty of you know books about <clears throat> intelligence services and the dark arts. And so these things happen, you know, with multiple governments, but um, they have a term in here that talks about uh, laundering uh, and it's, it's, uh, I need to get the exact quote, but um, it's, it's talking about the ways in which things are inserted, you know, from, con from uh, conspiracy theories to sometimes things that have a, you know, grain of truth. And, and those things are actually harder, you know, to filter out. But the scale and the and the difficulty with which, you know, companies like YouTube are having to, you know, dealing with this onslaught. I mean, I think I'm going to mention on the show a few weeks ago, I just, it's made me wonder if they're going to stick with the same bargain, which is anybody can set up an account, upload an unlimited content of, or an unlimited quantity of content, and yeah, just just go for it. So we talked last week about the terms of service changing, um, making it a little bit more explicit. They reserve the right. They say if they're if your content's not profitable, they can you know take off your channel. I would be really surprised if you know crafting channels and you know educational technology channels in Oklahoma and things like that are taken offline. Um, but you know YouTube is really grappling with this, and they're not. 
<clears throat> they're not showing a lot of their cards in terms of their blog posts and things. And part of this is sort of like probably SEO, which is search engine optimization. It's been this cat and mouse thing like, okay, what's YouTube doing? People are trying to figure it out. Well, they're not going to tell everybody because everyone's trying to game their system. Well, similarly, there's a continual you know, game of, of cat and mouse happening with content creators who want to put up content that, you know, a human filter, you know, might say, no, that, that Peppa, that video where Peppa Pig eats her dad. No, that's not going to be something we're going to allow here. But when you've got, you know, these thousands and, and millions of videos that are being uploaded, it's just an incredibly difficult uh, challenge. So I would commend that Renee DeResta article to you. And then on the same note, there's a Guardian article from November 19th, and this and this one is a little bit more stark, but it, well, maybe not. It says the collapse of the information ecosystem poses profound risks for humanity. And so in terms of thinking about these challenges that we're having, like this is from Lydia Paul Green. Uh, the subtitle is the viral spread of misinformation, widening news deserts and the proliferation of fake news will threaten life as we know it. So this is a bit apocalyptic. Um, I think she's actually the editor of the Huffington Post. Uh, we've talked a lot about media and about, you know, the challenges of comments, especially in local newspapers and the, all these difficulties that, that, you know, press and media face. Um, these are profound challenges that I'm, I'm struck thinking about this. Like, are we talking about this at all in school? I mean, I know we're studying Beowulf and we're reading Macbeth, but like, are we grappling with the reality of, you know, truth and the way information is shared? And the DeResta article particularly is saying mainstream media uh, journalists have to be so aware of how they can be pwned, how they can be essentially um, used by folks that want to spread disinformation. Because even if it is amplified for a short time and then debunked, it could be a win for those that want that to be injected into the information landscape and YouTube is a big part of this ecosystem. YouTube is Twitter is, and it's uh, it, I think it looks fairly grim. So Jason, perhaps things in, in Montana are much, much more optimistic. It's big sky country. You know, the attitudes just may be much more positive. Um, do, you know, is, is this, is this offline off, off task? Do we, or not off task, but just off base. Do we need to rest easy? Cause 2020 is going to be a lovely election year. Well, I got to say, I mean, I, I think you're right that it's, it seems highly unlikely to me that the, that many of the channels that I think have a legitimate, uh, fear here, right? Not because it's real, but because that, that, that the, the haziness of the, the statutes are, are, are problematic right now. And there is a lot of comment being taken by the FTC regarding the YouTube piece of this. But more broadly, as we've talked about here in the past, the, it, there's a technology correction going on, right? We have made mistakes. In, 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 in allowing, you know, unbelievable growth without a lot of regulation or even self, uh, uh consideration of, of what we want these tools to do and how we want them to work. And at some point, this was inevitable, right? And it probably should have been obvious it was going to be inevitable. And I, I've seen, I've seen the quotation contributed to six different people in the last three or four weeks, but, um, uh, a lot of ed tech folks have said this before that, you know, the best thing about YouTube is that it's available to everyone. The worst thing about YouTube is it's available to everyone. So everyone can be a creator here. And for every channel that I like or Wes likes that is just delightful because it allows someone with passion to speak to an audience they wouldn't before. There's, you know, a crank in a basement somewhere that and I shouldn't make fun of people in basements. Uh, hey, I'm, you're in a basement. I'm in a dining room. Yeah. You know, we can be where yeah. we want. 
Yeah. So um, the the someone who with antisocial views that perhaps has you know very outside of the mainstream views is putting you know has been given a a, a bullhorn of which to scream out uh, vitriol and hate and you know I it's it's hard to find the line for that right and because the, the our our culture has become more radicalized and we could blame the po- political culture but I think the technology has some something to do with that it makes it harder to divide where that line is at right because people who maybe uh, held mainstream views a dozen years ago that find themselves more radicalized, where's that line between, you know, uh, heartfelt views and radical views, right? And I'm not sure if, if we can really define that, which is part of the reason why the First Amendment's complicated in the first place. But, you know, we, we have to do this. And as much as I hope we clarify these rules, I'm with you, Wes, I think we have to um, we, we have to acknowledge this as a good direction we're going into and, and have conversations about where this fits in our world and, you know, be conscious of it as, as educators and as people that, that both, uh, work with to grow and also defend children. I want to do a shout out to an article from last week, but then maybe you can pick up, you've got a couple other articles there under the tech correction. I'd love to, to hear you, uh, pontificate about a little bit. Last week, episode 155, <clears throat> we included this link and mentioned it. This is by first draft on October 21st. Information disorder, the techniques we saw in 2016 have evolved. This is a fantastic article, and it talks about why really we need to stop using the term fake news. They suggest using the terms information disorder and then talking about disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation. And they define those things. You know, words matter in all of this. And part of the reason we need to stop maybe even using the word fake news is because, I mean, that has been weaponized against all journalism. Uh, and so anyway, just a quick shout out to that article. If you didn't take a look at that, uh, it's definitely worth, you know, look, you know, reading and thinking about. And I, uh, <laughs> I wish I could, you know, even do, when do ISTE proposals? I, I could Google that, obviously. I don't know when they're going to say yay or nay, but it makes me want to to have submitted more things about media literacy um, and about uh, disinformation. So what about these uh, New York Times and Recode articles? These will just warn people are not really on the optimistic you know, end of the spectrum. Yeah. Well, there was a, I think these were in the New York Times Magazine last weekend, but there was an extraordinary number of really wonderful um, articles um, uh, that were published this weekend. And I, I put a couple of them in um, uh, the show notes uh, this week, but uh, the New York Times Magazine reported, this was on Sunday, um, they had a great article that was called You Can't Clean It Up or You Can Clean It Up for a Price. And it goes into this slow evolution that's beginning to happen where um, the Internet, which has always been the promise free, right, free content, free connection to other people, um, obviously paid for by advertising because someone's got to foot the bill. But the free part of the Internet has been such an extraordinary part of the narrative. And we're starting to get to a point where people tire of the free content because it comes at a price, whether it's your eyeballs on advertising or it's your privacy or it's your data. Or you mentioned Wes, the people are, 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 are warning and aggressively pushing against the notion that data has become the new, new petroleum. But the bottom line is, is that people are in a lot of cases moving towards premium experiences that are both 
promising to to uh, protect your data and also not expose you to advertising. And as an example of this, they used the evolution of Hulu. Um, Hulu was released in, I think it was like 2008 or 2009, and the promise initially was uh, major networks wanted to get together to offer advertising-supported television to battle piracy. And so why pirate a TV show when we can offer you last week's TV shows for free um, by clicking here, watching a couple ads, and calling it good? And I remember personally being pretty impressed by that. This is before Netflix really took off as a digital service, and Hulu was great. And in fact, uh, it was that particular service that uh, caused me to cut the cord. It was probably 2008, 2009 before we, we stopped paying for cable tel television. And now what's starting to happen is that Hulu no longer offers a free tier anymore. And in fact, they will charge you more money if you prefer have no advertising at all, so the premium experience for them costs more than the advertising-supported experience. But the bottom line is, is that all over in our media architecture, in our connection architecture, we're starting to see more, and, and, and I know Wes is a term you use a lot, is walled garden, where the content's available to you, but behind a password wall that involves a payment. And it's really interesting because, you know, the democratizing nature of the Internet, the connection uh, uh, nature of the Internet, the worldwide access nature of the Internet was really premised a lot on content and stuff being free. Maybe not always premium content, but things are still are now evolving in that direction. At the same time, um, it, you know, the, the question also needs to be asked, um, you know, whether or not. Uh, free content's a good thing. We've talked dozens of times on our podcast about the mistakes that the news industry made early in, in the internet days by not valuing your content enough, offering it for free, killed newspapers, uh, local newspapers have suffered dramatically. I'm not sure how it would have worked out if they had maintained a line where they were, you know, very much uh, a charging for content or try to charge a similar price as the paper. I, I don't know what would have happened. It's hard to say what if, but that notion that the internet is 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 quickly becoming, you know, a place where you can pay for premium and exclusive and you know, dare I say, luxury access, whereas the rest of us, the unwashed masses, will be back in you know, gross advertising, um, you know, covered uh, uh, internet land that you know everything is an advertisement. Um, you know, for Casper mattresses. So do you have a thought about this, Wes, or where, where you're at on this right now? Well, the, the earlier article I mentioned about the Guardian, the collapse of the information ecosystem poses profound risks for humanity, right, you know, tracking along with that, uh, saying that, <clears throat> you know, the, the days of the gatekeeper are gone and we are in this incredibly fractured landscape where there are so many choices where the viability of folks to, you know, be able to provide for themselves and have their, their companies, you know, pay them to produce quality journalism, um, you know, is really challenging. So I don't know that there are any solutions <clears throat> being offered in any of this. There's a lot of hand wringing. Uh, and I think it's just, it's kind of just getting worse. Although I'll say this in terms of content creators. Well, and it's the bigger getting big. I was about to say something positive about Disney plus. <clears throat> um, I mean, it is phenomenal the the access that we do have. Yeah. Um, but you know, network effects are real, and 
some of these articles are talking about, I think it was that Guardian article, you know, Google and uh, Facebook just alone are, are the new monopolies. It's 75, 80 plus percent of all advertising dollars are being spent on those two platforms uh, alone, right? And so, uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's a lot of media literacy aspects to talk about this, but I don't, I don't really, you know, we've said it before. Good journalism is worth paying for. We're paying for the New York Times. It's it, uh, as a school, and I'm I'm thrilled. I'm reading that more than I ever have been before. I'm going to their app, you know, to read their news. But we don't we don't have a solution in sight. However, I will I will say that you know the BBC and Britain and the ideas that they have about supporting uh, news, uh, kind of like we have public television. You know, there's, I think there, there are some models there, but I don't know if that is a sufficient model, you know, for journalism writ large in the world. And I guess the main thing I'm thinking is we just, we have to have media literacy across the curriculum and across society because people have to be the filter. You can't just turn on your, your device. And, and this is with, uh, who was it? Rushkoff who wrote, um, you know, program or be programmed, I think, you know, we've, we've got to help people become more savvy about filtering their feeds and, you know, have, having some control over the algorithm, uh, that is, that is, you know, feeding them stuff because, you know, a lot of what's going to be fed is going to, is, is of course going to be consumerist. I don't know. It's just, it may not be a healthy diet. So yeah, media literacy. I'm going to, I'm going to go with that. Where else should we go today, sir? We've kind of we've talked tech correction quite a bit here. Sure. Let's uh, go ahead and do some more uh, kind of on-the-ground tech stuff. Uh, some Windows news. Uh, in case you are curious and counting down yourself, Windows 7 enters end of life in 54 days, 3 hours, 25 minutes, 29 seconds. And the reason why this is so important is because Windows 7 became the, ref- the refuge for those that, that were no longer supporting Windows XP. When in, in Windows XP support died uh, a number of years ago after being supported, in my humble opinion, way too long for the operating system. And now Windows 7 is going in the same direction, which means after uh, that, uh, after January, whenever it is, it will be a, uh, a no longer uh, an op- a supported operating system won't get security patches. And I can't stress enough that um, I, I, I understand why people end up with an operating system that's stable and lock it down. I'm not just talking about personal users. I'm talking about large uh, 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 businesses or schools that lock those things down. But it's time to move on to Windows 10. And we want to remind you as a public service announcement that if you are running Windows 7, there's a good or decent to good chance that you can get Windows 10 for free by updating now. And that might not always be the case. So um, a great Thanksgiving project. Uh, there are literally thousands of great tutorials about updating your computer to Windows 10. We would suggest maybe installing from scratch or maybe also coupling that with an, with an SSD drive or more RAM or something to help enhance your experience. But I can tell you from personal experience that most of the PCs made in the last 10 years work really well with Windows 10. And I think Windows 10, ignoring the things we've told you about the kind of update shenanigans, is a really solid operating system. I like Windows 10. It's a good, solid operating system. So 
whether you're in the tech world and schools and you've been dragging your feet on this and I'm sorry to hear that your winter break will probably be taking up doing updates um, or if you're a home user and you've been hanging on to a beloved PC for maybe a bit too long, Windows 7 is going away. It's time to update to Windows 10. Yeah, absolutely. I was having some conversations with fifth graders today who wanted to run Minecraft education and they were lamenting that they didn't have Windows 10. They had seven. So <clears throat> good reminder to, to, you know, let everybody know. And hey, kids, maybe ones to, to go home and tell adults, Hey, guess what? Our operating system is, is out of date. It's not getting any more updates. So <clears throat> on the security front, uh, a couple articles. This was CNN on November 19th. So your Disney plus account was hacked. Here's what to do. Well, Actually, according to the article, people that are saying our Disney Plus accounts were hacked um, really needed to be using different passwords. I think it was maybe two weeks ago on the show, two or three weeks ago, yep. Jason talked about the fantastic changes and enhancements to Google and their password set up there. I think you just go to passwords.google.com and they will tell you if you have any saved passwords, you know, which, how many and which ones have been breached. Um, how many are repeated? We've said this before multiple times. All of us need to be using a different complex password on every single website. And the only way that you can really do that and be sane today is to use a password manager. Now, I've also read some people or read some opinions that they, they feel like Google is not the, not the best. I mean, you're, if you use Google, Chrome as your password manager, you have to be in Google Chrome. And if you log in on different computers and whatever, I mean, I, I do think, um, you know, a, a solution like one password or LastPass, something that has apps and, and has multiple ways to get to it is, is your better solution. But anyway, this CNN article was kind of a case study in how people need to be aware that their passwords are on the dark web and they are in the wild and you know, if you're signing up with that same password, you know, using an email account you've used before. Oh, guess yeah. what? Folks have written automated systems to log into things like Disney Plus and whatever else they can to try and get your information and hack your account. And then there was another excellent, uh, this was NPR from November 18th, entitled Cyber Criminals Are Hacking Human Nature to Steal Billions from Us. And so this is a similar story that we've heard before. Nothing's new under the sun. But, you know, the sophistication of some of these things are a little scary in terms of how different groups are getting into enterprise as well as individual email systems, watching conversations. And particularly, like, there's a story about real estate. You know, when some money was going to be transferred, jumping in and saying, oh, yes, and here's the account. Please wire it. And, you know, the guy who's interviewed here that keeps his his name anonymous says, you know, there was $50,000. It was just wired to the wrong place. I do not have to have the wand of healing at our school for technology anymore. And I am not responsible. Thank the Lord for, you know, all the cybersecurity and everything that is, is entailed there and being a tech, the technology director. But listening to this this week, it made me think, you know, anybody in your organization or mine who handles money, should not only be having two-step verification turn on, everybody should be having two-step. But to take that one step further, rather than using SMS, you know, at a minimum using an app and having SMS turned off, and even better using the, the key fob, which, you know, Google has switched to all of their employees and they haven't had a single breach since they've done that. Like, if people handle money in your organization, 
take that seriously and be really aware of how important it is to, to pick up the phone and talk to people or, you know, don't just take email as, oh, okay, that, that's the number I need to use. So I think those are both excellent articles. And I, actually my, uh, our middle daughter is, uh, as is involved at our, at our university in a TEDx event next year. And so I'm thinking about putting in a proposal for like technology fear therapy. But I mean, part of it would be talking about this password stuff and how much we need to, you know, move beyond the fear factor and help people actually do some tangible things to protect themselves some more. So a couple good security articles. What else would you like to pick up? You have a plethora of Google articles as usual. Do you want to pick up any of those or would you like to go somewhere else? Sure. Let's, and I can do a couple of these really quickly. Um, a couple of my carried over from last week, things that I had wished we had had time to talk about. I got a little distracted by the, um, uh, Phil Schiller article last week, uh, talking about how Chromebooks, um, were, were terrible. But, uh, one great thing, uh, Google, or the G Suite team has announced that they will be rolling out in the next couple of weeks the ability to add audio to Google Slides. And, um, I know both Wes and I use Google Slides quite a bit. It's, uh, my primary method of, of presenting, uh, now. And I don't use a ton of audio, but when I need it, I need it. And there's a, there's a workaround. Um, it involves taking a YouTube video, or I'm sorry, it involves taking the audio, putting it in Google Drive, then sharing it as a, um, uh, background. Uh, sharing as a background, then you put it off the screen, then it does it automatically, and it, it takes like ten minutes to do it. But now you can just uh, upload a, uh, you know, an audio file, an MP3, for example, and, and play that in an audio slide. And that's pretty sweet. I do can, like. Can, can you make it auto advance though? Like, can you do a synchronized slideshow? Like that you? I don't know the answer to yet, but I would not be surprised if you could because I think that's the main implementation um, of that tech. Slide um, slide share is how I used to do that, and that was a great. Yeah, yeah, point. absolutely. And I, 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 well, and, and SlideShare doesn't offer that, that's that anymore, right? Mm. No, yeah. it was built by, link, by LinkedIn and yeah. yeah, it's not great. So, and then one other uh, interesting bit that I, I think is, is, is worthy of a bit of discussion is that, um, a cardboard, which has been Google's VR, a cheap VR play, um, it's interesting because I do see a lot of interest around VR still, but it doesn't seem to be really creating any lasting uh, implementation in classrooms, right? Like I haven't seen as much as I thought there would be. And part of it's because there's a high barrier to entry for the good stuff. But Google was really uh, on top of the notion of, you know, anyone can get access to VR and their cardboard project, which was a cardboard based holder for your phone that you stick up to your face. And then, you know, you can look around and see um, uh, good VR imaging um, that, that was called cardboard. And that was technology that you could, um, uh, use on, on on an Android or an iOS phone or or tablet for that matter. They've open sourced that technology, and I think that's really interesting because I think it's an omission on Google's part that the VR play has not been nearly as 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 uh, fruitful as they thought it would be. But they have interest in continuing along, and I would imagine that's especially true in education. And so the fact that, that technology is now open source and people can work it into their own apps, I think, is great news and a really smart move on the part of our friends at the Googles. Excellent. Uh, let's skip down to a um, article on AI. So this was a Vox article on November 15th. Activists want Congress to ban facial recognition. So they scanned lawmakers faces. Um, it is shocking 
what folks can do with artificial intelligence today, right? Amazon has, you know, tools that anybody can, can tap into. And so, uh, they said almost 14,000 people's faces were non-consensually scanned in Washington. And of course, there were also folks that were misidentified. And this is part of the point to say, if we're going to, you know, we are careening, I think I can say this, uh, as a nation, in a parallel path to China, and China is much further along. In fact, I don't have this in the show notes, but there were some revelations because of some leaked documents out of China um, about the Uyghur minority and the way in which they, there's like up to a million, maybe a million people that are in relocation, re-education camps. This is like out of, I, I don't think they're death camps where people are being gassed, but we're talking huge human rights, ridiculous horrible things that China is doing. And so the level you might have heard, and I did, you know, that London, you can't walk outside without being on at least a few cameras that their CCD camera system, you know, for years has been among the uh, most extensive, but, you know, and I'm sure St. Petersburg and Moscow, there's a lot of places that have extensive uh, systems, but what they have in China is really unprecedented and the ways in which, you know, it intrudes on people's lives. And so anyway, this article um, from Vox and this advocacy that people are doing is questioning whether or not we want to have that same kind of a surveillance state here in the United States and in the West. Or do we want to take a stand for values like privacy uh, and, and um, you know, the, the opportunity to not have your face scanned into a system and then law enforcement, for instance, you know, make decisions and choices, you know, based upon that. I do think there is a bit of inevitability to this, but that's, that's the sweet spot of what we need to be talking about and debating, right? How much of this is, oh yeah, this is the march of technology. And then how much of this is, no, we can, we can fight. Against this, what are we going to fight for? And I don't think, you know, there's going to be a lot of people, especially when you look at terrorism and homeland security and just, you know, lots of things, you know, trying to say law enforcement shouldn't do any of this, but should they do all of it? You know, should we look like the Western region of China? Is, is that what the United States should look like? And, and sadly, I think there are some conservative voices among us that are like, yeah, you know, we just need to lock down crime as much as we can. Let's just give law enforcement everything. You know, all the gloves are off. Um, and, and I just I think there needs to be limits. This is part of what our Constitution does. It puts limits on the rights and powers of, of government. Um, and so anyway, I think this is. A good article, and it's interesting to see, you know, of course, they live streamed this in, entire thing, and it was really, you know, meant to create publicity. But the question is, are we talking about it in school? Is this an issue that we are discussing, surveillance and privacy and the extent to which the United States should become China? I think that's a great topic to have kids think about and write about. Yep, couldn't agree more. And and if nothing else, too, that I think it can also help inform you um, about the um, uh, well, when politicians are creating regulations for this, right? Like, I, I think sometimes it can be boiled down too much to the headlines opposed to some of the important discussions we need to have to determine what the future of all of this is. Um, I, so a couple other related articles to AI and automation that I threw in. Uh, first, just an interesting one that, uh, The Verge uh, reported this morning that there is a company that's offering a, um, they call it a robot lawyer, but it's a company that is, is, is already, um, 
working on uh, a product or already has released a product. It's called Do Not Pay. It it allows you to contest parking tickets. I'm sorry, uh, speeding tickets and parking tickets um, in an automated way. Like basically, it's they you give them all the information. They release the hounds and start doing the you know kind of paper trail to challenge things. And you can even sue someone through Do Not Pay. And um, they're now offering a new service that that's a robot lawyer that takes terms of service agreements, the things that you, I'm sure, are just clicking past when you install a new app or start up a new cell phone or uh, reset your phone. It's the stuff you agree to to use software suites, uh, basically telling you um, what you're signing when you do that. And I think it's a very, very clever idea. I think it's a, something that probably people should be doing that anyways. Like, I, I think part of the problem here is that the companies that are offering these agreements should probably, you know, uh, state them in, in, in plain uh, speak as opposed to the extraordinary legalese that it does. So I thought that was interesting. And then a really interesting article that uh, uh, about um, uh, kind of automation and, and artificial intelligence and um, automated work uh, taking over jobs. Great, great recode article that talks about that there's a new study that says that artificial intelligence um, uh, uh, will likely take over not just jobs that that we thought were threatened because of robots right like factory jobs and we talked last week about truck driving and the prospect of that major career uh being impacted by uh, uh automated cars and robot cars well according to this article and study that a lot of jobs that we have said are safe from from automation uh knowledge worker jobs and in a lot of ways i'm a knowledge worker i work in the context of a virtual school and and, and provide support through that largely through computer stuff um, could be replaced by AI. And that kind of counters uh, uh, the narrative that we've been really focusing on the last 10 or so years in the world that the jobs that will be left over are more of these knowledge economy jobs because they are much harder to automate. But as this article states, um, that is not true. It's it's a, a, a different um, a way of looking at this debate if many, if not all jobs, end up being ultimately automated. We've talked in the past in the podcast about that this you know inspires much grander discussions. We've talked about uh, universal basic income schemes that, that have been proposed to in part to deal with the coming loss of jobs that many people fear. But Wes, do you think your job as a technology teacher will be replaced next week by a robot named Rover? Yes, I have my, my resumes out, and if you would like to hire, <clears throat> give me a call, westfriar.com. Um, no, I don't, I don't think, especially with regard to teaching and, um, you know, the, the importance that we have with young children, like, yes, there's all kinds of ways that education is being disrupted by technology, but, you know, the vision that people have, everybody, you know, it's, it's like one of those, one of the, was it, which Star Trek was it where, is it Spock? Somebody is down in, in this, like, you know, sort of like a VR room of, with 360 degrees, but it, it's really interesting thinking about going in here to get your, your training and, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, no. So <coughs> teachers are not, you know, we're not necessarily going to be, you know, paid uh, top, top uh, Silicon Valley wages, but um, we are going to certainly still have employment for the foreseeable future. Um, I do want to give a shout out to the uh, last week as well. I mentioned under the topic of AI, this PBS Frontline special in the age of AI. 
it took them two years to put this together. Um, this article you mentioned from Recode and, and these kinds of thoughts are, are included there because, yeah, don't just say, oh, well, I'm, I'm white collar. You know, I'm good. No, uh, the robots are coming for your job as well. But also they're they're coming to augment us. Right. Uh, doctors, surgeons, all kinds of folks are going to be augmented. And we already are. I mean, we I'm I'm a, a Ray Kurzweil fan. Where'd my phone go? You know, we're we're sort of merging with our technology and our our, our thought life already is highly uh you know transformed and and animated by the the ideas which are flowing, you know, from this device in into our eyeballs, uh into our ears, you know, not directly a neural link yet, but Anyway, I think that um, that is the best summary of, of AI and the need that we have to, you know, be preparing young people to be older people, to be resilient, to be flexible, to have a variety of workforce skills. Um, yep. I also think it's important to be entrepreneurial. Uh, we don't tend to do that very well at all in traditional school. And, you know, entrepreneurism is a powerful thing and we are going to continue to need creative minds, not only to solve problems, thinking about engineering and computer science and all kinds of things like that, but, you know, also to figure out what is it that people will pay for. We live in a postmodern era. People pay for experiences. It's really interesting to see how that tracks in multiple, you know, arenas of, of our lives. Um, so anyway, I think it's the, these are important topics to process because thing like we talked about last week with truck driving, like stuff is happening faster than a lot of people realize. I want to make one other note about that recode article. And I would really recommend that you go to edtechsr.com, take a look at the article in our show notes because they do also offer an extraordinarily interesting um, uh, data visualization about which jobs are more likely to be automated than less. And as an example of this, I, of course, look for teachers in this, and almost all teachers were at the uh, 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 relatively little impact to dramatically little impact because of the, the extraordinary human service the teachers provide. But as an example of this, um, the teachers that were most likely to be automated were secondary teachers, the, the uh, followed by middle school teachers, followed by elementary school teachers, in the least likely to be automated, which is that there is a high chance it won't be art, drama, and music teachers, which is no surprise to me. Uh, special education teachers, which, you know, um, uh, maybe the refuge people go to. Those are still jobs that are highly sought and great shortages exist. Those are unlikely to be automated. Um, and then jobs that... Uh, um, you know, you're probably not guessing are unlikely to be automated, but you start to think through it. Food service, retail salespeople, highly unlikely to be automated because um, that those are you know larger human services. So interesting thought exercise, if nothing else. Well, Wes, Absolutely. we are headed towards the top of the hour here. Are there any other quick links you want to go through today? Uh, we want to do that quick one about the uh, smart TVs. Yes. Uh, interesting consumer uh, note, and this is actually impacting members of my family, so I have some personal perspective on this, but um, the where did you go? Uh, Business Insider reported on November 16th that smart TVs have had kind of a rough couple of weeks because some interesting things have been happening. Um, for example, uh, uh, my in-laws reported last weekend that uh, they've been given a notice by their television that Netflix will no longer work on like it's like December 7th uh 2019 because 
the software is no longer compatible with their TV. It has an older processor and the new software required to run Netflix. Uh, it doesn't work on, on the, the, the computer uh, technology available in their television. So Netflix will stop to work. And so there's been a, an interesting um, discussion in consciousness about the fact that the problem with buying smart TVs is that you are buying software that's likely not to last the hardware of the television. Um, you know, televisions are much more disposable than they were, let's say, 15 or 20 years ago. But, you know, a decent television Decent, well-made television could last 8, 10, 12 years without batting an eye, and the likelihood of that software lasting that long is almost nil. And so the alternative is don't rely on smart televisions. Instead, rely on things to plug into your smart television, Apple TVs, Android television, Chromecast, Roku boxes, dirt cheap pieces of hardware. The best part about it is if it starts to run slow or if the, the, the hardware becomes too old to serve up the modern technology it needs, you just pull it out of the back and you buy a new one. So interesting tip. I have one other thing from the standpoint of, of working on a, 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 an educational campus. Um, we were buying some televisions for new offices that we moved into earlier this year, and we used IT's recommended televisions and um, so that we could get their help in, in getting them set up. And they were uh, very cautious uh, and said that you know they don't have any minimum requirements, but they try to find the least smart televisions possible because the firmware in those televisions is not only a security risk if it is no longer updated, but more importantly, oftentimes you need to, to uh, take that, that television and have it plugged into a network, whether you want to or not, just to get the television to function. And so the Samsung TVs were the ones they were saying were on their naughty list for that, but something to think about. And it's because they want to gather data. It's back to surveillance yeah. capitalism. It's back to the tech correction. You know, this is what is driving so much of consumer electronics and the, the world of technology, you know, is the gathering of data. It is exceptionally difficult to impossible to purchase a television today that from what I've seen, and maybe this is just the suppliers that we have used, <coughs> which isn't a smart TV. So um, I'll comment uh, on your um, mention about that because we, you know, Apple TVs are expensive. We have one fourth generation at our house. And we have more TVs than that. I love the Chromecast, not only because yeah. of its ambient mode and being able to use Flickr and just like, I'm, I'm convinced that as my wife and I get older, uh, at some point, I'm going to want an entire wall of one of our rooms to be nothing but screen, you know, and then to have, you know, pictures of vacations and our kids and our family. Yeah. I mean, the the quality of life that's enhanced by, you know, seeing those images is very positive. But, you know, Disney Plus, we would have had to have subscribed as a family. Um, you know, have I watched that on just the Apple TV? No, we've got Chromecast. And I think it's real genius with, with Google strategy to say, Hey, you're renewing this, right? Your smartphone. That's something that you're rolling over on maybe not a two year basis, but you know, you're, you're going to be getting new smartphones and the power of this to stream is fantastic. So I have not had any issues with buffering or whatever. I'm using some older Chromecast. It's fantastic. Um, one other article quickly, and then we'll do Geeks of the Week. Um, you put this one in. This is a Boy Genius Report on November 15th. Almost no one is buying Google smart speakers anymore. And, I mean, this is – you mentioned a few weeks ago you've gone all in, I think, on the um, Madam A, Alexa yep. um, smart speakers. And so there's some statistics here showing how Amazon is leading the pack. 
Alibaba and Baidu, which are both Chinese companies, are second and third. Google is having an annual growth rate of negative 40%. So it's talking about I'm yep. kind of falling off a cliff. Uh, was that influential for you seeing that trend? Or you have a remarkable crystal ball, sir, to be able to know that, yes, it's time now to move to Madame A. Well, I, it's for me, it just because the functionality of, of, of the Amazon products was, was, was better. And I think that, you know, it, the other article we're not, we're not going to talk about this week. Uh, I'll just mention it. Uh, Microsoft has announced that Cortana is going away. It's, uh, uh, leaving iOS, Android in January and assuming that's, that's probably to come on the desktop as well. But, you know, I, I, I happen to have done groundbreaking academic research in this area. So I know a lot about, about these various platforms and something that was clearly true when I was doing the, the processing of my data as part of my research study was that um, consumers were leaving it because the functionality was not growing fast enough to keep people's interest. And I'm not saying that the Amazon product is perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but for a an entry into smart homes plus the ability to do what I want to do, which is to play music and podcasts, it's pretty hard to beat. It's a great platform. The barrier to entry is extremely low. The hardware is pretty decent quality. And it's no surprise to me. Like I, I think my Google Home is a nice piece of hardware, but it's it is it is not as good as the Amazon hardware and it was more expensive. So yeah, I I'm not surprised by that, but I think if Google wants to get back in that game, they have to make the Google Assistant more functional, the, the software assistant that comes on that hardware. The, the bummer is I just don't trust Amazon as much yeah. as I trust Google. So yeah. anyway, I remain uh, still in the, the Google camp with that. Well, uh, shall we do some Geeks of the Week? Yep. Uh, I'll do a quick one and then hand it off to you, Wes. Uh, we um, like to provide a lot of kind of public service information here. There was a great article on Tech Radar on November 15th. I think we've actually mentioned this here in the past, but don't use public USB charging stations, and they are finding more and more instances where people are installing hardware malware into those devices, and you're plugging you know, your device into that with a cord that can pass data. Like, it's unfortunate that power and data is passed through by the same ports, but the bottom line is is that there there can be software that's pushed to your phone if you do that. My guess is it's probably a little bigger of an issue with um, Android than it is with iOS based on what I know about the platforms. But just don't use public charging stations. It's too risky. Carry your own charging stuff. And you, sir. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a USB condom? I have heard of a USB condom, as a matter of fact. Yep. So those are those are a thing. I I went to a, a CF uh, whatever uh, CIO forum <clears throat> on security, and the uh, chief security officer for Tulsa University just like blew everyone's minds. He did like live hacking of you know unsecured Windows systems that were on his campus, and anyway, it was crazy. And he had all these different devices, which by the way, he had a letter from his president authorizing him as a white hat hacker to be able to do that, <laughs> which he said you need to do if you're going to yeah. do that sort of thing. But yeah, anyway, there are these things called USB condoms and what um, it says 
This is one uh, for $15 on Amazon called USB Defender. The USB Defender is the simple and easy solution, keeping your data safe from unwanted data breach. This device will always keep your smartphone safe no matter where you charge, perfect for airports and public transportation. Keeping your device safe from intrusion is our promise. So <clears throat> if you would like to have one of these, you would insert your charging cable into this, and then you would put it into the public charger. So I think that advice you're giving is good, but I also think people might want to look into uh, the idea of using a, a USB condom, uh, which is called a data blocker to prevent that kind of thing from happening. Uh, I have not used said device, but I've heard from people who are smarter than I am with security that they're good. Um, my Geek of the Week is the National Geographic Teacher Certification Program. I put a link or I will, it's in the, in the uh, <clears throat> show notes and I'll put a, a link there um, on the podcast as well to this Twitter thread. Amazing. This is one today I heard for an hour and a half, a, a National Geographic Explorer who happens to be the brother of one of our middle school French teachers uh, talked not only about volcanoes, but about Peru and so many things just blew my mind. Oh, my gosh. And so I, I made a, a Twitter thread. Um, he's actually he's actually the model for a Lego character that Lego company has produced. That is a scientist like he was the model for that. Anyway, small little fact. But <clears throat> he mentioned at the end, the National Geographic Certification Program. This is a great free certification that you can do online uh, by yourself with somebody you know else at your school with other friends in different places focused on multidisciplinary learning. Uh, National Geographic has been bought by Disney and he mentioned that they are like tripling their monetary commitment to education. When we think about the challenges facing our planet from, you know, climate change to genetic editing to, you know, so many different things, uh, sustainable energy, we need to energize, you know, kids to not only care about the planet, but be motivated to go out and make the world a better place. And that could be their backyard. It doesn't have to be, you know, somewhere half a world away. So check that out. I've got that Twitter thread. <clears throat> and then really quick, the last thing, one of my fifth graders, I don't know if you know about this. Do you, do you use Ecosia or have you heard of Ecosia, Jason, which no. is plant trees with search. So this is a, a German based company that has a Chrome extension. Uh, you can add it to iOS as well. And what it does basically is it is getting a cut of ads. So it's kind of like Amazon Smile, right? If your nonprofit or group uh, wants to basically have a little cut of people's money they spend on Amazon, people could go to their Smile link, and then when they shop on Amazon, you know, your favorite nonprofit gets a, a cut of the money. Well, <laughs> this is interesting in a surveillance capitalism framework because I think you should run ad blockers whenever you can, uh, which is interesting when we think about journalism and how to... <laughs> <laughs> we pay for journalism, <laughs> but Ecosia is going to take a portion of the, you know, data that they'll surreptitiously gather about you as you search the web, and then they will plant trees to make the world a better place. You search the web, we plant trees. But if you have an ad blocker, the first thing you're going to see is, please disable your ad blocker, you know, and it doesn't say this, but so <clears throat> our surveillance capitalism model of planting trees will work. We are going to sell your data. So Ecosia, shout out to one of my fifth graders for letting me know about that. Well, we've got a little bit past the top of the hour. Uh, I am W Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org on the blogs. Dr. Neifer, where can folks find you? I am a tech savvy teach on Twitter. I blog at the Northwest Council for Computer Education Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And um, I probably spend more of the time on Twitter than anything else. But this here, this is not 
social media. This is a podcast. It's the EdTech Situation Room. We're here on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Central. Uh, I'm sorry, 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain Time. I think we're at 4 a.m. UTC something, something, something. In any case, uh, check us out on, on YouTube or on Facebook where you can watch our show live and even comment from the chat room or you can download our podcast wherever you find the finer podcast to do so or you can go to our website, edtechsr.com and download a teeny tiny audio file to listen on your own. We invite you to our next episode of the EdTech Situation Room. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay savvy. Good night.